0: We're having a series of sermons on epiphanies. The epiphany that I'd like to share with you this morning starts with something that I noticed in New Testament text that I hadn't really paid attention to before. I suspect that most of you have had the similar kind of experience of uh, reading something in the Bible, maybe even hundreds of times, and failing to notice things that in retrospect seems blindingly obvious. Often the reason that we miss obvious meanings in the Bible is that we've been programmed to read biblical text in ways that hide from us what we're not expecting. Like many of you, I was programmed to think that the question of whether you're a Christian is centrally about whether you affirm particular beliefs. Now, admittedly, there are belief tests in the New Testament. I don't want to suggest that you can be a Christian no matter what you believe. But as I was preparing the final chapter of my book last year, what jumped out at me was the realization that multiple scriptural texts propose a different kind of test of whether you're a Christian, a behavioral test. An example is the passage that we just heard from 1 John. If you're not reading this text with blinders on, it clearly says that whether we love other people is a sign of whether we've made genuine contact with God. If you don't love other people, the text tells us, you don't know God since knowing God can't be separated from living in harmony with God's nature. Other New Testament texts give us a similar test of the memorable judgment scene in Matthew 25, the crucial question is whether you've shown compassion to the most vulnerable. Lots of people, including me, find ourselves a little uncomfortable with the idea of a behavioral test of whether you're a Christian. We worry that we may never measure up. I suspect that for many people, this discomfort is connected with the thought that God is threatening to do awful things to you if your behavior is not good enough. I think that that idea is a distortion of Christian teaching that we should probably do our best to get rid of. However, we shouldn't get rid of the thought that being a Christian is inextricably bound up with how you were living. That brings me to my epiphany. It is that the instructions Jesus gave us about how to live can be thought of as a program through which we learn to love others. So I would suggest that rather than getting too worked up about how close we are to achieving the goal, we might ask ourselves instead whether we're enrolled in the program. When I was teaching college, one of my courses was called Ethics and Good Living. In this course, we studied various thinkers who developed accounts of how to live a good life. In addition to readings from historical and contemporary philosophers, the anthology that I used for the course had a section in which various biblical texts were used to represent the teachings of Jesus. This section included selections from the Sermon on the Mount and from the Parable of the Good Samaritan was teaching at a state university, so some of the people in my class had no background at all in the Bible, and others brought with them an understanding based on what they had heard in church. When we looked at the text from the Gospels where Jesus taught some things that seemed pretty demanding, such as turning the other cheek and loving your enemies, there was considerable discussion in the class about what these texts meant. Some students expressed the thought that these teachings would be extremely difficult to to put into effect. Others thought that there were ways to limit what was taught so that it was less demanding than it might appear on the surface. However, most students agreed that Jesus was teaching a way of life that was strikingly different from how most people act, including most people who say that they're Christians, and that most people, including Christians, don't really attempt to live according to these instructions. I typically ask the class whether it was important for someone who claims to be a Christian to follow Jesus's teaching. Some said yes, but a significant number of Christian students thought that obeying the most difficult instructions was not really expected. They said that Jesus didn't actually intend people to to live as he taught, but rather to realize how far short they fell from God's standards so that they could repent and be forgiven. In other words, they thought that the teachings were intended to reveal human sinfulness rather than to serve as instructions about how to live. I suggested to these classes that there was something a little odd about claiming to be a follower of Jesus, but not trying to live in the way that he taught. By this time in the course, we'd read numerous ethical teachers, Some of them advocated ways of living that were very demanding, requiring disciplined retraining of habitual ways of thinking and acting, which couldn't be accomplished without um, sustained commitment. Nobody suggested when we read each of these teachers that they weren't really trying to get people to live as they taught. So I ask how plausible it was that Jesus didn't intend his followers to behave as he instructed them. After all, didn't he say that his teachings were like building a that obeying his teachings was like building a house on sturdy foundations? This brings me back to the idea that I started with, a test of whether you're a Christian that focuses on whether you are loving other people. What I want to suggest is that loving others is not typically something that we can do immediately just because we think we should, but it's something that we can learn to do by following a set of practices that prepare us to love. Think of the program of instruction that Jesus gives as like a school in which you are unlearning some habits and learning new ones. In this school, we're given a set of disciplines that we can consciously choose to follow. If we practice these disciplines, the result is to clear away some of the barriers that keep us from living a life of love. Ideally, the church should be a community that facilitates the process of learning to do what Jesus taught. In other words, to be his disciple. But for a variety of reasons, churches have often been very poor at teaching us how to live as he instructed. Sometimes churches haven't even realized that part of their job was to make disciples, not just to get converts. And too often they promoted agendas that lead to a kind of self-righteousness and disparagement of others that is at odds with genuinely loving other people. But that doesn't mean that we can't envision the kind of community that provides guidance, encouragement, and support for people who are trying to follow Jesus. Taken together, the teachings of Jesus can be understood as outlining a curriculum. They can help us dismantle habits that keep us from loving. For example, One thing that blocks our ability to love others is that we are so good at finding fault in them. The human tendency is to notice and condemn the faults of others, but to be less aware, maybe even oblivious, of our own failings. We don't typically think that our judgments of our own behavior are biased. However, we find it easy to come up with rationalizations to justify what we do and we reflexively take a defensive stance when others question it. One social scientist, citing research studies that show people who do bad things typically think they are good people who are motivated by good reasons, suggests that we all have what he calls an inner lawyer, whose job it is to represent our actions in the most favorable way. Further, we actually believe the stories our inner lawyer invents for these purposes. In response to our built-in tendency to judge others more harshly than we judge ourselves, Jesus tells his followers not to judge, or perhaps not to judge unless they're willing to have the same kind of judgments applied in their own case. Using a memorable and picturesque image, he asks, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye but do not notice the log in your own eye? If we had a more realistic understanding of our own faults, we might not be so quick to call attention to the faults of others. But we are prone to take a point of view that hides our own failings while highlighting other other people's failings. Of course, Jesus knew as well as anyone that never finding fault with another person is not really a realistic option. Some negative judgments are proper and even inevitable. Jesus himself makes negative judgments when he calls the religious Leaders of his time, hypocrites, and we can't really have a sense of justice without being able to recognize some instances of injustice. The problem for most of us, however, is that our fault finding gives expression to a presumption of superiority that gets in the way of more loving responses. When we set up ourselves to pronounce someone guilty, we don't usually do it out of a concern for the person's well being. Often it's a way of putting the other person down a peg or claiming the moral high ground for ourselves. And the attitudes toward others that accompanies our pronouncements tend to crowd out more charitable thoughts about other people. So following the way of love means that our tendency toward fault-finding needs to be tempered. Instead of allowing it free reign, we need to cultivate the habit of restraining the urge to call attention to the faults of others. It's not hard hard to see that restraint of this sort is often wise. We can recognize that our judgments, the ones we're inclined to make, are often presumptuous and ill-considered. How often do we reach a judgment in anger without attending to the relevant facts, or in ignorance of considerations that would lead us to revise our judgments? How often are we rigid or unsympathetic in the way that we apply our standards? how often are we using our judgments to hurt the other person? What Jesus says about not seeing the log in our own eyes suggests a rule of thumb that we might use to restrain our tendency to make pronouncements about the faults of others. Suppose we consider their failings from the same kind of perspective we apply to our own behavior. If we would make excuses in our own case, shouldn't we be ready to consider the same kinds of excuses from others? More generally, if we would give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, shouldn't we be ready to do the same for others? Most of us are skilled at finding ways to avoid admitting fault in our own case. So perhaps we should apply these skills to considering how the faults we are so eager to point out may be less clear-cut than they might initially seem. Or we might think that even if someone has done something wrong, if we knew all the facts, they might seem less blameworthy. Than we assume. With some effort, we may be able to apply to assessments of others the same kind of charitable interpretations that come so easily when we consider our own acts. But what if the fault is genuine? What if we've exercised restraint, but the judgment of wrongdoing is inevitable? Can we then make a judgment? Often we can, but there's another teaching of Jesus that may apply in such a situation we should be ready to forgive. Forgiving actually presupposes that we've made a judgment that someone has done wrong. Otherwise, there's no need to forgive. But Jesus' teaching about forgiveness tells us what to do when we make such a judgment. His teaching is difficult to put into practice, and it goes against strong inclinations. It often violates our common sense, and sometimes it seems absolutely crazy, or at least utterly misguided. But the instruction is not unclear. Jesus teaches that when others wrong us, we should forgive them. I understand the forgiveness he calls for to mean refusing to hold the wrong against the other person and relinquishing our desires to hurt that person. But why? We all have a strong sense that people should be held accountable for what they do. And forgiving sometimes feels like not standing up for yourself or standing up for somebody that you care about. However, don't confuse forgiveness with papering over a misdeed and pretending that there is no real wrong done. And remember that a willingness to forgive does not exclude efforts to protect yourself or others from continued victimization. In the most admirable cases of forgiveness, the refusal to respond with hostility is not a matter of lacking self-respect. Instead, it proceeds from an unwillingness to enter into the cycles of ill will that so often poison human relationships. At best, forgiveness is a display of love that is shown by a willingness to give others more than they deserve. And often, it is a recognition that bad behavior is bound up with the kind of ignorance and confusion that pervades the human condition. People in our day sometimes suggest that forgiving others should be done for our own peace of mind that an unforgiving spirit leads to internal bitterness that in the end hurts us. That suggestion is not without merit, but it's not really the focus of Jesus' teaching. Christian forgiveness is rooted in the thought that even those who have done terrible things have a potential for reformation that can be triggered by an experience of grace. By holding firmly to a vision of what the other person can be, we can lay down our obsession with extracting retribution and replace it with a concern for redemption of one who has strayed from the path. Fuller awareness of our own failings can help us to see the need to extend grace to others. Jesus portrays forgiveness as flowing from a realization that God has forgiven us. In his model prayer, we ask for forgiveness as we affirm that we also have forgiven those who have wronged us. Nothing I've said is intended to suggest that following Jesus' teaching about forgiveness is easy, or that it may not be painful to put into practice. In a way, that's just the point. Being willing to forgive is being willing to absorb pain ourselves, rather than inflicting it on others. In cases of major wrongs, forgiving may not be something that we can do immediately, but trying to obey Jesus means striving to get to the point where we are able to forgive. What we are seeking is to respond to others with love instead of hostility. The difficulty of forgiving is closely connected with the difficulty of laying down our anger. Anger is often an automatic response when we perceive that someone has wronged us. It's a response that's built into the programming of our bodily systems. We can recognize that anger plays a useful role in human relations. It functions as a signal to others of the need to back off It motivates people to protect themselves or to protect others from someone who has violated the rules of proper behavior. However, anger also has a downside. Jesus focuses on the connection between anger and violence. He traces acts of murder to getting into the kind of angry state conducive to thoughts and intentions to harm or kill another person. He's obviously not saying that anger always has this result but he is saying that being filled with rage towards someone puts us on dangerous ground. Not only can things escalate beyond control, the response of anger tends to fuel our tendency towards self-righteousness and to hide from us, less hostile ways of responding to others. When we are angry, we're making a kind of judgment of others that Jesus warns us about. Anger is not just a feeling, that expresses a construal that someone has done wrong. Our bodily states reinforce our construal and predispose us to defend ourselves against the wrongdoer in verbal and nonverbal ways. The judgments that we make in angry states are typically not nuanced ones that take into account all the relevant considerations. They may sometimes be correct, but they are often overly simplified ways of thinking about what has happened. So if we take Jesus to be warning us about fault-finding generally, we might understand his teaching about anger as warning us that we need to learn to question our angry responses and to restrain them. An important strategy of restraint is to refrain from some behaviors that an angry state might lead to. Jesus' is teaching not to retaliate for wrongs done exemplifies this kind of restraint. Following a policy of not retaliating is a way of guarding against the danger of anger escalating beyond control. But there's a broader reason for the practice of non-retaliation. Retaliation Retaliation against others conflicts with forgiving them. If you think that forgiveness is the proper Christian response, you should recognize that reserving the right to retaliate for wrongs done is antithetical to the Christian way of life. Paul echoes the teaching of Jesus when he says in Romans, that vengeance should be left to God. He also says in harmony with Jesus' teaching that the Christian response to those who wrong us is to do good to them. Instruction to do good to those who harm us goes against strong intuitions that are both biologically and culturally based. Our intuitions are structured by what has been called the principle of reciprocity, do good to those who do you good, but respond to people who treat you badly by giving them the same kind of treatment in return. Sometimes this standard is called the copper rule. The rule describes, I think, how people generally behave, but it contrasts significantly with the golden rule that Jesus endorses. Treating others as you want to be treated calls for doing good even to those who are treating you badly. And people live in this way their behavior can be surprising, even startling to people who have been socialized to think and act in terms of the principle of reciprocity. Non-retaliation and forgiveness can seem utterly naive. They can seem like ways of losing at the game of life and allowing others to take advantage of us. But Jesus seems to question our competitive orientation. He would not be persuaded by the claim that pursuing personal advantage is just what people do. Instead of thinking about how human life is generally lived, he focuses on what God intends it to be. He conceives of the life God intends not as an unrelenting struggle for wealth or power or status, but as participation in a community in which people care for each other, especially for those who are most vulnerable. In the kingdom community, people are willing to give up personal advantage when doing so is needed for the good of others. The commitment to follow Jesus is a commitment to live this way. I've mentioned only a few of the teachings of Jesus about how to live, but I think I've said enough to suggest that what he teaches can be understood as a set of practices that can help us learn the way of love. These practices are best learned in community. As Norman Wiersbe puts it, to learn to love, you have to practice with other people who are committed to inspire you when you are tired, celebrate when you succeed, and comfort you when you fail. At the beginning of this message, I called attention to the way the New Testament makes loving other people a test of whether you've made genuine contact with God. Thinking about things in this way can be discouraging. We're bound to see how far far sharp we we fall of the ideal. But I want to suggest that we think about it in a different way. Jesus invites us to attend a school in which over time intentionally engaging in certain practices can draw us closer to the way of love. The question is not so much whether we're ready to graduate, but whether we're committed to a process that can in the long haul enable us eventually to achieve a more human way of living. For most of us, I suspect that that process will need to extend beyond this life, but that's okay because God has as much time as it takes. I want to conclude with a story that I think illustrates something about the kind of community in which Jesus might have envisioned us learning the way of love. It's a true story, but also a terrible one. In 2006, a man named Charles Roberts took an arsenal of guns into an Amish schoolhouse in rural Pennsylvania. He sent the teachers and the boys away, but kept 10 girls between the ages of 6 and 13 in the building. He then proceeded to shoot each of the girls in the head before turning a gun on himself. Five of the girls died immediately, and five were left in critical condition. Roberts left behind a stunned wife, Amy, along with their three children. Within hours of the incident, members of the Amis community arrived at the Roberts' house, bringing with them gifts of food and offering comfort to the family. They promised continued support for the family and later for the parents of Charles Roberts. A few days later, at the burial of the one who had brought such grief to the community, Nearly 40 Amish people were present. The Amish showed no hint of hostility and no interest in retaliation. As a community, they were shaped by a tradition of nonviolence, and they had internalized the teaching to respond to evil with goodness. It wasn't a matter of discussion, they considered no other option. This schoolhouse shooting is one of what have become all too frequent acts of senseless violence. The tragedy of the event was not erased by what happened in the aftermath. The parents and the whole community still had to live with the loss of their precious little girls. But the slaughter of the children wasn't the whole story. What stands out is a response to evil that is strikingly different from the standard responses of anger and retaliation. What stands out is a community who lived in accordance with the teachings of one who had told them to love their enemies. The tragedy is undeniable, but so also are glimmers of a way of life that exhibits God's intention for human beings. We see people who are committed to practices that have shaped them to follow the path of love. May we also be that kind of community. May we be, as our name suggests, channels of the peace of Christ. Amen.